we have been uh, through the summer really talking about uh, creating community and what does it look like to, uh, what's, what does the journey look like towards better friendship? And so we have tonight and one more week talking about this. If you haven't been with us, I encourage you to check out what we've been uh, doing and what we've been talking about online. And uh, tonight I want to start with this. Think about your childhood best friend. And maybe you didn't have one, uh, maybe it's a sibling, or maybe it was your mom, that's okay. Um, but just who, who's your childhood best friend? Think about them and some of the things that you did. This is my childhood best friend, and um, this is me. I was Augustus Gloop in a play. And uh, this, is, this is the only person in my life other than my wife that I've ever actually called a best friend. And uh, we were really close as kids, and we did all sorts of things together. And as you can see, I've got stripes on my jeans, so don't judge me. Um, but I do hope that comes back. So that's all I'm going to say. And if it doesn't, I'm going to bring it back with duct tape or something. But uh, this is my childhood best friend. And, and most of you probably had some sort of childhood best friend, somebody that you rode bikes with, and you played with, and you knocked on their door, and you play, depending on where you lived, you jumped in the creek or you played video games together or whatever it was. Most of us have had some sort of childhood best friend. And then, and then time goes on a little bit. And some of you went to college, some of you that's recent, some of you that's a long time ago, or just that stage of life. Here's some of my uh, college best friends. And there is me. This was like not my normal clothes. This was an eighties night that we kind of dressed up uh, for. And yes, my hair can do that. So, um, me and Scott, we can both, we can get a fro. Um, and this is your college years, right? And so for those of you that went to college or kind of around that age, you develop, especially if you went to college, lived in the dorms, you develop a lot of close friends, right? And you're kind of hanging out and you're living together and you're road tripping together and you're in each other's weddings and you, I mean, it's just, you're kind of seeing each other nonstop all the time and it's fun, right? It's a blast. It's one of the, some of, probably some of your best memories that you've had in your life if you went to college are during college. Because you just have, it's just like I was talking to a college student yesterday and was saying, I don't even care how expensive college is or what the degree is. To me, my favorite part of college was just the friends. I learned stuff, sure, but it was just the friends. That was my favorite part of college. And I'd pay it all over again, even if I learned nothing, just for the memories and stuff that I had with friends. And that's true for a lot of us, that we love some of the friends that we've had and we get great joy from some of the friends that we've had in our life. And it's not just the joy, the the research actually even shows that, and I won't go through all the different things, but the research shows that friends make you a better person in many ways. That if you look at your life, People that have friends, they work better, they work smarter, they live longer, they're healthier, your heart rate is better. I mean, just all of these different things, the benefits that come from friends. I I even heard that uh, loneliness is just as bad as smoking for your health, which is crazy. But friendship is one of those things that we love, that we long for, that we enjoy. It's, it's something that, that we have had in our life, probably most of us, whether that's siblings or college or childhood friends. But here's what happens. We make friends, we make friends, and then life, we go through changes in life, right? We go, I mean, several of you, I asked a minute ago, who's new to Denver? Let's just do that again because some of you weren't in here. Who's new to Denver in the last year? So look around the room. That's crazy, right? Like what happens is you build these friends as childhood and then college, and then life changes happen. You move somewhere, you get a new job, you get married, and then maybe some of your friends shift there. You get divorced, and some of your friends shift there. You have kids, and some of your friends shift there. You move to a new place, and some of your friends shift there. I mean, what happens is we make these friends, we love it, it's enjoyable, we have all these experiences, it's great, and then life changes begin to happen, right? And some of the friends that we spent so much time building, some of the friends that we spent so much time loving and enjoying life changes. You know what studies actually say? This is crazy. That every seven years, your friends turn over. Every seven, so if you don't like your friends, it's okay, just the clock is counting down. Every seven years, your friends turn over. Think about this. If you were, maybe, and I was thinking about this, if you were married seven years ago, my wife and I have been married for almost nine years. If you were married seven years ago, or something like that, Are you still the close? Would you pick the same people that you had in your wedding party today? Or or what about this? Maybe you haven't maybe you haven't lived that long or been married that long. What about the person you walked with in high school? Would you still walk with them? I haven't talked to that guy in forever. I don't even remember his name. I'm like, what was that guy's name? 
person I walked with in high school. Did you get, everybody did that, right? You walk like down the aisle with somebody. It's like a weird wedding thing. And it's like, oh, I'm walking with you. Okay, maybe not. In my school, you chose somebody to walk with. Maybe, it wasn't just me. I'm like, Come up with me. Get my degree. Everybody picks someone to walk with. Or the person that you were closest friends that you went to like prom with. And those are the people in your limo and all that stuff. Are those still the people that you're friends with today? Probably not. And probably the people that you're friends with today probably won't be the friends that you are in seven years. Every seven years, friends turn over. And here's another crazy thing. This, this article in Vox talks about this. It says why 30 is the decade friends disappear and what to do about it. Research shows this, that by the time you're 25, you start losing more friends every year than you make. You start losing more friends every year than you make. Now think about that. So here's what happens. We're childhood friends and, and we're, we're, we're playing and it's all enjoyable. And you go to college or that, those years, maybe you didn't go to college, that's, that's cool. You saved a lot of money. And then you're making friends during that time, right? And you're, it's enjoyable and it's fun. And then life changes, stuff starts to happen. Maybe you hang on to some of those friends, maybe a couple of those friends you still keep in contact with. But stuff starts to change and life starts to shift. And every seven years, friends start turning over and they start losing friends. And it's hard as an adult, to build friendships, isn't it? Isn't it hard as an adult to build friendships? I know a lot of us feel this, and this isn't just something that you feel. This is something that has actually been talked about a lot, especially recently in the last couple years in the news. These are just some headlines. These are all the last couple years. This is Time Magazine talking about how to make friends as an adult. This is the Wall Street Journal, the science of making friends. This is real simple, how to make friends as a grown-up. This is uh, CNN, this is the age when you start losing friends. This was just a, you know, a couple months ago, June 6th. Uh, I love this one because it's under the strategy section, which is interesting. It's under the strategy tag, business insider, how to make friends when you're a grown-up. This is serious. We've got a strategy, your 401k and your friends, you know, but it's, but it's true. It's, it, this is something that is talked about widely, that it is hard to make friends as an adult. It's hard. Okay. That's just a fact. And so people try to develop solutions for this. Like, what can we do about this? This is Craigslist. And some of you probably have not done this. And you think, that's crazy. I go to Craigslist to buy a couch, not a friend. But look at this. This is Denver. This is just Denver. There's over 1,500 postings in the last few days seeking friendship. Now, maybe some of you, that's not crazy. Maybe you've done that. I'm not judging. I just know that most of us are like, yeah, I buy a couch on Craigslist. And maybe I go and like... Hey, the couch is 50 bucks. Hey, well, I'll give you 40 if you're my friend. How about we, you know, we do that? But, it, I mean, there's 1,500 postings, people looking for friendship. Or This was a post on Reddit a couple years ago, and someone posted this. A website like Match.com or OkCupid, but for best friends. That was the, the title, and then they just put, I'm so lonely. And then people started to respond. So this guy's kind of going on Reddit, and this person said, I was going to f- make findabro.com. Chips are, chicks are welcome too. Okay, so findabro.com. Maybe that's how some of you found your bros. And then this person responds, just let chicks find someone too. And this person says, y'all have Pinterest. But then look at this. Isn't this interesting? That's more for maintaining loneliness. Kind of interesting though, right? And then this person says, that's what I need. I'm not against having girlfriends, but sometimes a guy just needs a bro. So what are your hobbies, bro? And then this person says, if you're in or around Boston, I'll be your bro. That's nice, right? Just some bro love going on. And then this person responds, so Facebook? And this person says, Facebook isn't so good for finding friends, only for keeping in touch with the ones you have, but wish you didn't have. <laughs> also, my mom and grandmother are on Facebook. So people are coming up with solutions to go, how can we make friends? There's, there's apps. This is a website called girlfriendcircles.com where you can, it's basically like dating for groups of women. Or there is uh, girlfriend social, make new friends in your area, same kind of thing. Or there's socialjane.com, need a second for tennis? Or there's uh, this, hey, Vina, your new best friend. I mean, all of these things, these are all of these different things that have been developed to say, look, it's basically dating for friends. That's what it is. And there's all these different sites to say, look, adult friendship is hard. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. Adult friendship is difficult. Adult friendship is not easy. So people try to come up with solutions. What can we do about this? And some people, their solution is, man, I'm just going to try as hard as I can to hang on to the old friends I have. But then what happens is, even though that's great, you miss out on friends here. And some people just, okay, I got to make a new friend. I got to make a new friend and make a new friend and just try so 
frantically to make friends. And some people just watch TV and say, forget it, right? I'll just watch people being friends on TV. And it's difficult. And people try to come up with solutions for what can we do about this. And you know what's interesting? We may even know a lot of people. We may even know a lot of people at work and even at church and in our families and still feel lonely. Proverbs says this, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You know what this is saying? You might have all sorts of companions in your life, people you drink with and people you hang out with on the weekends and people you're working with and people you even kind of text funny things to, but there's a friend that we long for that's different from just a bunch of companions. There's a friend that we long for that's different from a bunch of companions. We make friends as kids. We make friends as kids. We make friends um, in college and, and that age. And then it gets difficult. So this is a long intro. Okay, We haven't even started the sermon yet. This is a long intro. But here's why. Because I want you to know this is normal if you feel this way. And it's natural even in some ways. Because you just go through life shifts and stuff changes. And we do kind of just go through different people in our lives. And you have friends for seasons and friends for phases. It's normal. And sometimes we feel like, man, I'm the only person that's feeling like this, even though it's a national conversation that's happening. Sometimes we feel like, man, I'm the only one that's doing this when there's 1,500 postings on Craigslist in the last few days saying, I need a friend. I will go to Craigslist to find one. It's a natural thing. It's a normal thing that a lot of people experience. So I set this up just to say, look, it's normal if you feel that way. And... I want, look, one of our values as a church is that friendship is better. Friendship is so much better than just doing life alone. And I want for you, and as a church, we want for you and for us to be able to experience friendship. It is a gift from God. It is a beautiful thing that we can enjoy and receive and benefit from and give to others. It's a beautiful thing. And I want, look, I want you to find and experience friendship. That's what I want for you. I mean, the whole series that we're doing is all about this. And truthfully, a lot of, and I'm not saying this to knock other churches, but a lot of churches don't actually talk about, wouldn't spend seven weeks talking about friendship. And it's great if they do. There's not a lot of books or a lot of things or conferences or stuff that's written about friendship. But man, I want that so badly for us as a church. I want that for you as your pastor. And here's the good news. There is a way to have this. There is a way to create community. There is a journey towards better friendship. That's what we've been talking about for six weeks now. There is. There is a way to find that, to have that. And tonight, here's what we're going to talk about. Two things. Oh, I didn't set my timer on this, so that means I can start now. Okay, so perfect. Um, So there's two things. So we only have two hours left. So there's two things. Two things that we're going to talk about tonight. What we're going to talk about is this. We're going to talk about what is it that uniquely gets in the way of us finding the friends that we want, and how is it that we can move towards better friendship? Those two things. So first is this. What gets in the way of forming friendships? What gets in the way of forming friendships? In in the last five weeks, we've talked about several of these. We've talked about conflict, which gets in the way. If there's not a graciousness in the community, we've talked about independence. And a lot of times, we actually don't feel like we need other people. We've talked about uh, the the fear of rejection. And so we actually uh, cripple our friendships because we don't share with people what's going on in our lives. Now, we've talked about all sorts of different things, okay? So we've been talking about that all along, but, but tonight I want to narrow in on one that is, I think, one of the most dangerous ones, and one that is unique to the church, especially. There's all sorts of kind of areas in life that, that we can go, man, there's difficulty in forming friendship. There's stuff that gets in the way of forming friendship, whether you're a Christian or not. But I think in the church, there's one especially that gets in the way of forming friendship. And that's what we're going to talk about right now. So, before I talk about that, though, let me preface it with this. This is why this is uniquely dangerous in the church. 
Here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says about who we are as Christians. So some of you I know probably are not Christians or unsure what you believe, and that's great. But here's what the Bible says about kind of what it means to be a Christian. Here's, here's some things it says. Romans, Paul writes this to the church in Rome. He says, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. That's, I mean, we've probably heard that verse if you're in church or if, you're, if you haven't been in church, you know, maybe that's new, but this is an amazing verse. We, we're a bunch of people. We are many, but we're one. In fact, we're a body. That's a beautiful image to say we're all these people coming together and actually forming a body because we are so integral to one another. We're so interdependent on one another. We so matter in each other's lives that we actually belong to one another. We are members one of another. What you do affects me and what I do affects you. And and elsewhere he talks about when one rejoices, we all rejoice. When one suffers, we all suffer. That he says you are intricately connected in Christ. That when if, if you're a Christian, if you get attached to Jesus, if you come to him, then he brings you into his family and you actually become one with other people that are Christians. That's amazing. And then he says this. He writes to a same author, Paul. He writes to a pastor named Timothy. And he says this, and there's a bunch of stuff in here, but I'm just going to show you this one piece. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things. So he's writing this letter. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, here's what he's saying. He says, you are God's family, his household. Sometimes people walk into this building and say, oh, I'm in God's house. This isn't God's house. God's house, what this verse is saying, is the people. And Peter writes about that too, saying that that you are a chosen people and you are a temple. God says, you're my family, you're my household. That's why Christians all throughout the Bible call each other brother and sister, because we say God's our father. We've been adopted into that family. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, I save you and you're mine. He says, no, I bring you into a family and you're my kid now. And you've got brothers and sisters and you're part of my household. See, to become a Christian is to get invited into God's household. He says, you've got new brothers, you've got new sisters. I'm your dad. That's amazing. And then this. Third John says, he just ends his letter like this, peace be to you, the friends greet you, greet the friends, each by name. And he's not talking about Monica and Chandler and that, he's, he's saying this, he's saying, because we are a family, we can even just say, we, just one way to refer to each other is the friends, because God has made us family, and he's made us friends in Jesus, that's a reality, that's what has happened. Now, this is beautiful. This is an amazing thing, but it's this very thing. It's this very thing, this beautiful reality that that the Bible talks about. It's this very thing that from that often comes a distortion that is one of the things, I think, the biggest thing in the church in particular that gets in the way of forming friendship. So what is it? What is it that gets in the way of of forming friendship, of messing with this unity and this bond that gets created. So there was a man named Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you maybe have read some of his things. He was a pastor and an author and a theologian and a seminary professor. And he was around during World War II. He eventually actually was a part of a, a plot to assassinate Hitler. It failed, and he was murdered, killed, executed by the Nazis. During World War II, here's what happened in Germany. He was a German. Here's what happened in Germany. The the Nazis wanted to control what the church was teaching because they know, as is true, that the message of Jesus can totally change things. So they wanted to control that. And they wanted to regulate what the church was allowed to speak about. And they wanted to control what could be said and what couldn't be said. And, And Dietrich was not okay with that. Bonhoeffer was not okay with that. So what he did is he started an underground seminary. Started an underground seminary where he trained pastors. And they, these people lived together in homes. And they got really close. I mean, if you've ever been in a situation where there's pressure from the outside, even a sports team is kind of like that. There's pressure from the outside and it creates community. Or if you've ever been in a situation where there's suffering and there's persecution, there's, it creates community. So you've got these people in Nazi Germany that are an underground seminary and it's pushing them even closer and closer together. And they're bonding and they're close and they're... There's threats on the outside that is bringing them closer on the inside. 
So Dietrich knew a lot about community. And he wrote a book called Life Together. And in that book, in the opening chapter, he doesn't go into, here's all the different things that you need to do to build community, and here's how it is. What he knew is this. We've got this tight community. We've got this community that's forming. We've got this community that's, that is a counter-community to Nazi Germany around us. We've got this community. But he knew that there was a threat that could destroy it. He knew there was a threat that could destroy it. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to quote him at length from his book, Life Together. And I would love to uh, not quote him because it's going to be long, but I can't say it better than he can. I haven't ever tried to assassinate Hitler. So what he says is way better than what I would say. So we're going to read from him. This is a picture of the seminary, um, one of the pictures. So here's what he says about the danger to Christian community. And here's how it goes. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, so that's good, right? The more genuine, the deeper it becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ. But through Christ, we do have one another, holy and for all eternity. So that's good, right? Saying, man, we have each other. We are bonded together in Christ. That dismisses, so that reality dismisses once and for all every clamorous desire for something more. So now he starts to go, there's something, though, that clamors in our heart. Even though Jesus has brought us together, even though he's united, even though, even though the one thing that makes it so vital between us, Jesus, what he's done, the beautiful reality that we just looked at, there's something that clamors in our heart for something more. And this yellow is kind of weird, so maybe you can't see that, but I'll read it. One who wants more than what Christ has established does not want Christian brotherhood. So somebody that wants more than what Christ has established, they want something different. He's looking for some extraordinary social experience which he has not found elsewhere. He's bringing muddled and impure desires into Christian brotherhood. Just at this point, Christian brotherhood is threatened most often at the very start by the greatest danger of all, the danger of being poisoned at its root. So he says this, Jesus has united us. He's brought us together. That's a beautiful thing. We saw Paul write it to Timothy and to the church in Rome. And we saw John declare that everybody is friends. And this is beautiful. But one who wants more than that, that actually comes in, he's not looking for Christian brotherhood. He's looking for some extraordinary social experience. The danger of confusing Christian brotherhood with some wishful idea of religious fellowship of confounding the natural desire of the devout heart for community with the spiritual reality of Christian brotherhood. In Christian brotherhood, everything depends upon its being clear right from the beginning. First, that Christian brotherhood is not an ideal, but a divine reality. Second, that Christian brotherhood is a spiritual and not a psychic or emotional reality. Here's what he's saying. Here's what it depends on. Here's what Christian community depends on. It depends on us knowing it's already a reality. It's not some ideal we're trying to create or strive for, some wishful idea of religious fellowship that ends up messing it up. It goes on. Innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian, so someone comes, they're a Christian, they come into community. The serious Christian, set down for the first time in a Christian community, is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters, shuts dreams. So a Christian goes, man, I'm going to be in community. I'm going to bring all these ideas of what community is. And they come into community and they've got all these ideas of what it's supposed to be like. And God's grace will shatter that. Just as surely God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate with ourselves. He's saying God's grace will actually bring us to a point of disillusionment with other people, with ourselves, with Christians in general, that will go, this, this is all, this becomes cynical, none of this works. These people don't do it right. I don't even do it right. I suck. Only... That fellowship, only that fellowship, 
which faces such disillusionment. So only when we come to the end of all those wish dreams, with all its unhappy and ugly aspects, begins to be what it should be in God's sight. Begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. He says, you have to be disillusioned. Your wish dreams have to be crushed. The sooner, the better. Only then can it actually become what God wants it to be. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists upon keeping its illusion when it should be shattered, permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later, it will collapse. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. Listen to this. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself, the actual people, becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. He says, when we bring our wish dreams, our ideas, this is what I want Christian community to be, this is what it's supposed to be, when we take that and we bring it into a Christian community, it actually destroys it. When we love our ideal of Christian, see, this is why I say it's a distortion that comes from from those beautiful realities because we look at all this stuff and go, man, it's awesome that Jesus created this man, it's awesome that Jesus made this man, it's awesome. And so then our ideas start to go, oh man, I want this and I want this and I want this and I want this and I want that. And if we love our vision, our dream of a Christian community more than the actual people in front of us, it destroys it. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. So when we have this idea, we begin to judge other people. We begin to judge God. We begin to even judge ourselves. He acts as if he is a creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When we have these ideas of this is what Christian community is supposed to be and it's not going the way we want it to go, we go, this is a failure. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. I love that. It's all going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren. They're not doing this right. They're not doing this right. Then an accuser of God. Why haven't you given me this? I've prayed to you. Why are you failing me? And finally, the despairing accuser of himself. I'm not doing this right. I'm messing it all up. I'm not good. I'm... Because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship, because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ long before we entered into common life with them, we enter into that common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. We thank God for what he has done for us. We thank God for giving us brethren who live by his call, by his forgiveness and his promise. He's saying it's already a reality. Jesus doesn't say, look, you can have this. He says, it's, you're already one. You're already friends. You're already family. You're already united. You're already members of one another. So if we believe that, we enter not with our wish dream that we're trying to create, but going, thank you, God. We enter thankful. We enter as recipients. We do not complain of what God does not give us. We rather thank God for what he does give us daily. And is not what he has been given us enough? Brothers, who will go on living with us through sin and need under the blessing of his grace? Is the divine gift of Christian fellowship anything less than this? Any day, even the most difficult and distressing day. Even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is, this, is not the sinning brother still a brother? With whom I too stand under the word of Christ, will not his sin be a constant occasion? So even if people are sinning against you, will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ. Thus, the very hour of disillusionment, so when we become disillusioned, this is the very hour with my brothers becomes incomparably salutary because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. 
when the morning mists of dreams vanish, then dawns the day of Christian fellowship, the bright day. When, when our dreams go away, that's when we can actually experience what God has already created. That's when we can receive it thankfully. If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty, if on the contrary we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Jesus Christ. Are we more prone to thank God for what we have, even when it's paltry and weak and difficult, or to complain? The more thankfully we daily receive what is given to us, are you thankful? The more thankful you are, what happens? The more thankfully we daily receive what is given to us, the more surely and steadily will fellowship increase and grow from day to day as God pleases. Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our fellowship is in Jesus Christ alone, the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. What gets in the way of forming friendships? What gets in the way? You know what Bonhoeffer says? And man, I think we should listen to him because he knew. You know what gets in the way of forming Christian friendships? You know what gets in the way of forming friendships? Our wish dreams, our ideals, our visions, Loving the vision of a Christian community more than the people. Complaining, negativity, instead of being thankful and going, God, you've created this reality. It's already true. Look, if you are a Christian, you are the brother and the sister of the person in this room. This is a family. It's not an ideal. It's a reality. And Bonhoeffer says, the more that we enter in, then thankful, going, God, you gave me a family? You gave me brothers and sisters? This is awesome the more that leads to the actual creation of what God intends in the first place. So what gets in the way? This is what it is. These are the heart issues. There's a lot of things that we have to talk about when we talk about community and friendship, and we've, we've talked about a lot of them already. There's a lot of things that get in the way, but this is, I believe, the core heart issue that gets in the way. Because there's such beautiful realities that Jesus says we have. These are the things that get in the way. And here's what happens. We can chase and chase and chase and chase after, after this wish dream. We can go and go and go. But unless this heart issue gets resolved, like Bonhoeffer says, then we'll never actually find it. We'll never actually have it. We'll just keep chasing and keep chasing and wondering why our ideals are not being realized. So these are the hard issues, but I also want to give us some practical things of what we can do to move towards a better friendship. But, be, but, I, but let me be clear. You can't jump to these. You can't just jump to these if that heart issue isn't resolved. How can we move towards better friendship? Really, the whole series is what we're talking about. That's what the whole idea is, but, but this one just specifically will focus in. And here's three things. Three things. And the first one is this. It's a mindset shift. It's a mindset shift. See, a lot of times when we talk about friendship, we talk about, we talk about finding friends or discovering friends, but, but the truth is this. You do not find friends. You make friends. You do not discover friends. You develop friends. And those are very different mentalities. It's very different to say, man, I want to find some friends than it is to say, I'm going to make some friends. It's very different to say, man, I, I want to discover some people that could be my friends and, and to say, I'm going to develop friendship. Those are very different things. And it's a mindset shift. It takes work. It takes work to build friendships. And we know this with every other relationship. If you're married... Probably, I would guess, in your marriage, you've read a marriage book at some point. If you are a parent, probably at some point you've either read some parenting blogs or some parenting books or gone to a parenting conference at some point. If you're an employee and, and you've got um, 
co-workers, or, or if you're a boss and you're a leader, you've probably read some leadership books at some point. Think about those relationships. But friendship, the relationship that we actually probably have the most of, or want the most of, and struggle the most with, is the relationship that we actually don't give much thought to. I mean, how, how many of us have actually read a friendship book or gone to a friendship conference? I mean, we don't really think about it that much. But it takes work. You have to make friends, not find them. You have to develop friends, not discover them. That is a mindset shift that has to happen. See, we, we all want close friends. But what happens is this. We go, man, I want this friend over here. I want this close friend. Wouldn't this be awesome? This friend that loves me, that cares for me, and all these different things. I want that BFF, right? I want my heart necklace to match their heart necklace, and boom, you know? I, man, that's what I want. I had one of those, no joke. <clears throat> you want that, right? Don't judge me. I see the judgment flowing on top of me right now. <clears throat> That's what we want. But no friend starts there. Every friend starts with an acquaintance. Every friend that you've ever had started as someone you didn't know. And it takes time. But what happens is we go, I want that. And yeah, that's great. But you don't find that. You develop that. That means you can have low standards. It means you can go, this person's just an acquaintance. And I'm going to develop them into a friend. See, friends is not who you like. Sometimes you meet someone and go, man, I really like that person. They're so awesome. That's not your friend. I call those people heaven friends. Because you might like them and go, man, it would be nice to spend a thousand years with them sometime in heaven. But that's not your friend. Your friend is not people you like. Your friend is the person that over time, over and over and over again, you have developed that you've done certain things with, the different things that we've been talking about, encouraging and managing the conflict and spending time with and disclosing. I mean, a friend is someone that you have developed over time, not just someone that you see and go, oh, I really like that person. We, we hit it off. Now, here's what's interesting. The Bible doesn't say, here's how you make friends. The Bible doesn't say, hey, we want friends. Here's how you do it. What it does is this. It describes community. It says, here is this vision of community. And then it tells us to love. And over and over again in different language. It doesn't say, here's how you make friends. It says, here's what God calls us into. Now love people. I love how Paul just says it to the church in Thessalonica. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Which is ironic, since he's writing to them. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying, okay, I'm, I'm trying to pastor you. I'm trying to create a community here. You know what you do? Love people. And you, I know you're already loving people. Do it more and more and more and more. See, the friends are not people that you find. They're people that over time you develop into friends. That's a mindset shift. If we think we're going to find friends, if we think we're going to discover this person that could be our best friend or our great friend or our awesome friend, if we think that's what's going to happen, we won't make it. Because you make friends, you don't find them. This is really the premise of everything we've been talking about this whole series. We're talking about creating community. We're talking about creating it, which means there's a responsibility that we have, which means we can actually do something. We can actually, and we need to, take ownership to make friends. Which is why I encourage you, if you haven't been here, to go back and listen to those if this is something that you feel. Second thing is this. How can we move towards better friendship? First is a mindset shift. Second is to build consistency. See, you don't just make friends. You have to maintain them also. You don't just begin to meet people. You have to actually consistently spend time with people. You actually have to consistently spend time with people. You have to see them often, over and over and over and over again. When I was seven years old, maybe six, I was part of a church. I developed some friendships, and we were moving out. Of, we were moving to a, a different city, several hours away. And I sang a song, a goodbye song. Maybe some of you know it. Michael W. Smith. Friends of friends forever, if the Lord's the Lord of them, and a friend will not say never. Okay, and then. Because a lifetime's not too long to live as friends. Bum, 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 bum. And then it goes, I still, I still kind of got it, but I went through puberty, so it changed. But it sounded better with a high voice. I never saw any of those people again. 
friends of friends forever. I sat on a throne of lies and I lied to every single one of those people. I haven't seen any of them. I haven't talked to them. They're not my friends. Why? Not because I think they sucked, but because it's consistency. How you develop friendship is this. You have to build consistency into your life over and over and over again. It doesn't matter how much you like someone. It doesn't matter how much you care about them. You have to build consistency in your life. Now, here's what's interesting. Sometimes we hear some of this stuff. You maybe even hear this whole series that we've been talking about. You go, man, that sounds like so much work. When I was a kid, I didn't have to, I didn't ever read a book on friendship. I never listened to a sermon on friendship. I just had friends. It was easy, right? I just had friends in college. I never studied on it. I never, it just happened. It was just automatic, but it wasn't. It was consistent. The friendship was not automatic. Consistency was automatic because you were a kid and you were unemployed. And so you were next to them all the time. And then you went to college and you lived with them. Or if I'm really close with my older brother, my younger brother, we lived together, right? It's not that friendship just happened automatically and didn't have to be worked at at all. It's that consistency was automatic. It felt like the friendship was automatic, but consistency was automatic. You went to school with them every day. You went to college with them. You went to class with them. You hung out with them. You lived with them. Consistency was automatic. And then what happens is life changes and we lose that. And then it feels like, man, now I have to work at friendship. Yep, we do. Because you have to build consistency to build friendship. You have to. You cannot be friends with someone without regular interaction. Now, here's why this is good news, though. You know why this is good news? Because it means you don't have to find that unicorn best friend. It means you don't have to look for this person over here that's so magical and so amazing and completes you and is your, your twinsy or whatever. You, know? you don't have to find that. You just have to find someone that you can spend some time with over and over and over again. They actually have done studies that show, in, and this is, I just found this interesting, in police academy with young recruits, they poll people afterwards. Hey, who did you develop friendships with? It wasn't the people they had the most affinity with or where they grew up or, you know what it was? It was by alphabetical order because it's the people they sat next to. So over and over, I mean, that's good news though, right? Because that means there isn't some magic unicorn best friend you have to find. It just means you got to sit next to somebody. You have to build consistency into your life. You have to build consistency into your life. What does that look like? How do we build consistency? I'm just going to rattle off a couple quick things, and then we'll talk about the final thing. How do we build consistency? Part of it, these are just some ideas. Part of it is proximity. It's really helpful to live next to people because that can create spontaneous interactions. And I know that in life that that's not always the case. We're not always able to do that. But it's helpful. And it's funny to me sometimes when people make a choice where they're going to live, a lot of times it's what kind of house do I want? How many rooms do I want? What kind of yard do I want? What kind of schools do I want? What kind of, you know, all these different things. But not usually, oh, you know what? I'm going to sacrifice some things to live next to my friends. And then, they, and then they go, man, I don't have any friends and my friends live so far away. And, but what if we started with, I'm going to live next to my friends. Proximity is important. And not just proximity, but planning is important. How many of you, when somebody said, how are you doing? You were like, oh, I'm busy. I mean, all of us are busy, busy, busy. It's the new descriptor. How are you doing? Not good, not fine. I'm busy, right? If you want something to happen, we have to plan for it. Spontaneity is awesome. I love it. And proximity helps with that. But we all plan for our hobbies and we plan vacations and we plan all sorts of things. And we're all busy. You've got to plan if you want to build consistency. And I would even recommend doing this. Even if you don't know what you're going to do, just put on the calendar. These four days, I'm going to hang out with somebody. And then plan it. So we've got to, proximity is helpful, planning is helpful, prioritizing. These are not all going to be P's. I just noticed those are P's. It's not, it's not going to be like that. <clears throat> prioritizing. You can't be consistent with 100 people, Right? I'm going to consistently build a relationship with 100 people, so I'll see you each every two years. You know, you can't do that. That's not consistency, which is why we really value the community group environment that we have here, because that can become a priority. If you know what, yeah, it's great to have an extended family. It's great to see all sorts of people, but I can see these people in a built-in rhythm every week or every other week. Another one related to that is coming to church. You know, for thousands of years, for about 2,000 years, 
people came to church every single week. What's interesting to me is that statistics are showing people are more and more lonely and church attendance is going down and down and down. Not just people that are saying, I'm not going to church, but people that are committed Christians and love the church and come twice a month, once a month. Loneliness is going up and up and up and church attendance is going down and down and down. But for a couple thousand years, there was this rhythm that was always built in that people would see each other and they'd eat before and they'd eat after and they'd hang out. There's just a built-in rhythm. And I'm not saying it's a sin if you don't come to church every week, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that's a built-in rhythm into our lives that we can go, man, let's, let's build that in, consistency. I've got a couple others, but I'll skip them. Final one is this. How can we move towards better friendship? First is we have to have a mindset shift. Do we make friends? We don't find them. We develop them. We don't discover them. Second one is you've got to build a consistent life. How can you consistently over and over and over again see people? And the third is this. We have to keep initiating. See, oftentimes what happens is um, maybe we ask someone to hang out with us and then they don't return, they don't do that to us. And then we're like, well, what's up with that? And we kind of get into, it's like a board game. Well, it's your turn now. But friendship is not a board game. Look, if you ask somebody to hang out with you and they say yes half the time, then keep doing it. Do you know that even, you know, I've been doing a lot of research on this. Most relationships have somebody that's the primary initiator for whatever reason, whether that's just personality or just freedom or better texting skills. I don't know. I mean, just people, most relationships have a primary initiator. All my best friends in my life, I've always been the primary initiator with them. I've been the one that said, hey, let's, I mean, I just called my brother the other day. I went to a funeral. I was in California. It's just like, man, I need to spend more time with my brother. He lives in a different state. I don't get to see him very often. Called him up. It's like, hey, Gabe, we've got to find a way to get together more often. It's like, yeah, that would be awesome. I was like, okay, I'm going to come up with a plan. We're going to do this. Okay, let's do it. But I initiated that. That's not because my brother doesn't like me. It's, he didn't hang up the phone and go, crap. Oh my gosh. All of my best friends, it's always been me that's been the primary initiator and developed great friendships from that. And I'm not saying that like, hey, look how awesome I am, the primary initiator. I'm just saying most relationships have a primary initiator. That's okay. That's just normal. But sometimes what we feel is, well, if I invited them to hang out with me and then they didn't invite me to hang out with them, they don't like me, so forget it. But that comes more from our fear of rejection or our pride of wanting things to be equal. And instead, what I would say, like Paul wrote to the, Thessal- the church in Thessalonica, is keep loving more and more and more. He didn't say do it like a little bit and then and have them love you and then just keep initiating. Look, if you text somebody a hundred times and they don't respond, then okay, move on. But if, if, there's some, if people keep saying yes half the time, keep doing it. You just may be the primary initiator in that relationship, and that's okay. Keep initiating. Build consistency. Make friends. Don't find them. What does this mean for you? This is important. What does this mean for you? If you're somebody that doesn't have a lot of friends, you're new to Denver, you're new to church, you're new to friendship, maybe you cycled through seven years and now you're kind of, okay, I'm trying to make some new friends. What does this mean for you? Maybe it means begin to have a development mindset knowing it's going to take some time. I'm going to do the practices and the disciplines and the habits that we've been talking about the last five weeks. I'm going to do those over and over and over again consistently. And maybe you've got a lot of friends, but this is what it looks like to be a better friend. What does it mean for you? Well, I mean, just, I was thinking about what would happen if we really took this seriously? What would happen if the wish dream didn't affect us? We actually entered into community thankful, like Bonhoeffer said. I mean, we were just thankful. God, thank you, even if it's meager and weak and fail, just, man, I'm so thankful. What if we actually, I mean, what would happen, seriously? And what would happen if just, I mean, we've talked about all sorts of things, but what would happen if just these three things, if we just said, I'm going I'm to have a mindset of developing friends, not finding them, and I'm going to keep initiating, and I'm going to build consistency in my life. I'm going to integrate it, proximity, all these different things. I'm going to eat with people. What, man, I feel like that would change the world. If we just said, I'm just going to do this. And it's powerful. If our hearts are changed by not looking, longing for some wish dream that we interject, but we enter with thankfulness. And we go, it's a reality. This is my family. I'm brothers and sisters. And we do a couple simple things to say, I'm going to develop friends. 
Man, that would change so many things. And here's what I'll close with. When we take communion, when we take communion, what we remember is that Jesus had his body broken and his blood shed. He had his body broken and his blood shed. Why did he do that? You know, it's, when you look at the Bible and you see all these different commands, and just we looked at one of them. One of them was love each other more and more and more. Love each other more. I know you're already loving each other more and more and more. I know you don't need anyone to write to you about this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Love each other more and more. And why is that so emphasized? You know why? Because Jesus loves us. And so he gives these commands to create a community that loves each other because he loves us. He showed us that on the cross. You know what that tells us? Jesus is the best friend we could ever have. And maybe that sounds like a Hallmark card, but that's not the point. The point is that when we go, man, I want that kind of friend. I want a friend that is continually pursuing me over and over again, that initiates with me over and over again, that's constant, that has spent time developing a relationship with me. Jesus is the one that we're actually longing for. He's the one that has shown us how much he loves us on the cross. He's the one that has been the friend to sinners. He's the one that has been the friend to people that are not good friends. And can't we confess, man, I haven't been a great friend. And Jesus goes, but I'm still your friend. And he keeps coming after us and he's consistent with us. He is the friend that we long for. And the more and more that we get to know him as our friend, the more and more we see how good of a friend he is to us, the more we see how great lengths he went to to create a community and a family where we could be friends, not as an ideal, but as a reality the more we go, man, I I love that Jesus. And it changes our hearts to then become the kind of friends that we long to be, which is what gives us the friends we long to have. Let's pray. Let's sing. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have given us a great friend in Jesus. Thank you that you've loved us and cared for us. Thank you that you are the friend that we most long for and most need. Thank you that you are the friend that is consistent. Jesus, you have been consistent with us. You have loved us over and over again. You have forgiven us for being bad friends. You've forgiven us for our wish dreams that we bring in and and actually hurt community. You've forgiven us because you're a good friend that keeps going over and over and over again. And you call yourself a friend of sinners, one that would die for his friends, one that would create friends out of enemies. Thank you, Jesus, for this great truth. Help us, God, to come, become a community. Become a community that you have called us to be, to realize the reality that you have given to us, to not be affected by our wish dreams. Lord, Lord I pray, help us to confess anything we need to confess tonight. Help us to repent and turn to you and receive the forgiveness that you've given.